Welcome back to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly podcast, where you'll get the real rundown of what's going on in Scottish politics. We have the interviews, the gossip, and sometimes the laughs. So please join us. And remember, when anyone tells you they're not interested in politics, you tell them you know a podcast that can help them out with that. And you can also rate or review us on Apple Podcasts. So enjoy. Wow, the last few days have been a political roller coaster, not least for Nicola Sturgeon, who at the weekend, had she believed the newspaper headlines and TV reports, would be out of a job by now. But as has become the way in Scottish politics, expect the unexpected. The much-anticipated Hamilton report into whether the FM broke the ministerial code and would subsequently herald her resignation was due to be published at 4pm on Monday night. And while the minutes ticked away past the deadline, journalists waiting for the report to be posted on the Scottish Government's website had become so bored of constantly refreshing the page they started tweeting about an obscure government publication exploring Scotland's poor poise population. Sturgeon, Salmond, Dolphins, as if things couldn't get any more surreal, this was all getting a bit too fishy. And then the report was live. The FM was, in her words, vindicated. James Hamilton concluded she had not broken the ministerial code in her dealings in and around complaints made against the former First Minister Alex Salmond. And while there was much in the report for her to celebrate, there was plenty more to concern her. Not least that he talked of her government's saga of failures around the decision to defend the legal case brought by Salmond against them and which ultimately cost the taxpayer upwards of £500,000. Hamilton's report was very focused on the question of whether she had misled Parliament over the date she knew about complaints about Salmond, of what the purpose of her meetings and contacts with Salmond were, were they party or were they government, and whether she'd given the impression to Salmond that she would intervene in the complaints process on his behalf. So despite clearing her of any breach, Hamilton said she had not given MSPs the full story, and while he believed she hadn't deliberately meant to mislead, he also said it was for MSPs to decide if they had been. He said that the FM's explanation for not remembering a particular meeting at which complaints about Salmond were discussed will, he said, inevitably likely to be greeted with suspicion, even scepticism by some. But he said her version of events was not impossible. Hmm. It was hard to see Hamilton's report as anything other than a fairly subjective analysis of whether you believe Sturgeon's account of what happened or not. For his part, he was only concerned in whether she'd breached the rules and concluded she had not. And then he put it back to the MSPs to be the final arbiter in this, which does make you wonder, what was the point? Today, in contrast to yesterday's endorsement of the FM, the report by the cross-party committee set up to explore the Scottish Government's handling of the complaints against Alex Salmond concluded that the process had been seriously flawed, that it had been developed too fast in the wake of Me Too, that there had been a catastrophic failure to produce documents that led to a spiralling of legal costs to the taxpayer, and crucially, that the women had been seriously let down. However, the committee was split on the question of whether the First Minister gave inaccurate evidence to the committee and broke the ministerial code, with Tory, Labour, Lib Dem and independent members concluding she did, while the SNP members disputed this conclusion. Among the disputed areas in the final report, which was agreed by a majority of committee members, was whether it was credible that Sturgeon had no knowledge of any concerns about inappropriate behaviour by Salmond before she heard about the official complaints against him. 
The four members of the committee, the SNP members of the committee, Alistair Allen, Linda Fabiani, Stuart McMillan and Maureen Watt, dispute this conclusion on the basis that this makes no distinction between bullying behaviour and sexual harassment, and the only evidence they heard was that Salmond could be difficult to work with. The final report also concludes that Sturgeon did give Salmon the impression she would intervene on his behalf and gave inaccurate evidence about that to Parliament, which would be a breach of the Ministerial Code. It also says she should have made the Permanent Secretary aware of the meeting she had with Salmond on the 2nd of April 2018 about the complaints at the earliest opportunity afterwards. The four SNP members also dispute these conclusions. There have been recriminations on both sides about the politicisation of the process and leaks of the report's conclusions prior to publication, including evidence given at the last minute by the two women complainers at the heart of all of this, but who so often get forgotten. Linda Fabiani, the SNP MSP and convener of the committee, said, Our inquiry was a chance to reflect on what went wrong with the Scottish Government processes and ensure that the failings these women experienced never happen again. The women themselves got a chance to speak through the report and their assessment of the government was damning. We went through the entirety of the police investigation and the criminal trial with next to no contact from the Scottish Government, let alone any kind of support. It felt as though we were just left to swim. Left to swim. Appalling, just appalling. And while speculation still swirls about who benefited most from the leaks from that committee that ultimately damaged its credibility and therefore its findings against Sturgeon, no one comes out of this whole shoddy affair well. And with to date, not one person has taken responsibility or lost their job. And the FM herself has survived a vote of no confidence as she was always expected to do. It is truly a very different world. And while these most definitely feel like the angry last days of a crumbling empire as we hurtle towards the election on May 6th, it is likely that the SNP will be returned to power. On the evidence of the last few days and the findings of all three reports into these matters, the Dunlop report, the Hamilton report and the committee report, the FM may well need a bit of a spring clean clear out. But with a second independence referendum bill already published, Sturgeon's survival, while damaged, is also so bound up in whether that referendum ever actually happens. And that will be the choice for Scots as they go to the polls. It's been a tumultuous time, but as the fifth session of the Parliament comes to a close, we at Holyrood have been focusing on happier times perhaps, remembering some of the more positive times, and have been looking back on some of the big policy areas that have featured from 2016 onwards. Clearly, the environment, and more specifically, attempts to tackle climate change have really crept up the political agenda over the last five years. Indeed, it was only in 2019 that the First Minister declared a climate emergency. And so, to discuss all of that with me, I've spoken to Rosanna Cunningham, who's been Cabinet Secretary for Environment, Climate Change and Land Reform since 2016, but is also one of the original 99ers elected to that first parliament and is now standing down in May. We're joined by Chris Stark, CEO of the Climate Change Committee, and James Close, Head of Climate Change at the NatWest Group. 
So in some ways, the green agenda, I guess, has been the hallmark of the SNP's time in office. Um, indeed, going back to 2007, Rosanna, I can remember the coining of the green revolution phrase and talk of us becoming the renewables capital of the world. Mm. But the environment as a policy area, I guess, has noticeably really pushed up the political and policy agenda over this fifth session. Is that down to you as Cabinet Secretary or just indicative of where well, we are with climate change? I would love to take all the credit, but I think it's probably uh, going to be a bit of both here. Um, when I was first junior minister, and I was a junior minister of the for the environment between 2009 2011, my responsibilities were quite a disparate group of, or a disparate set of responsibilities that each kind of sat on their own. So at the time, I had responsibility for forestry and crofting and aquaculture and, yes, environment. Um, you know, set of very specific kind of things. But in fairness, at that time, it wasn't really seen as a, as a kind of unitary whole. Um, uh, it, was, it, was, it was done in a very um, uh, uh, almost like pillars way. You know, you were either doing crofting, and when you did crofting, you were doing crofting, and then you were doing forestry. But you weren't, you weren't seeing the, all the connections. Now, when I came back into it in 2016, um, by that point, and, and there'd been some changes made. So climate change had appeared on some ministerial remit agendas. There's a couple of different ministers for whom climate change was also part of what they were doing. Um, and I think it was a decision in 2016 to create a single portfolio for environment, climate change and land reform that began to drive that sense of this actually being a, a single portfolio set of interests and even the dividing lines between environment, climate change and land reform effectively do completely break down um, because you can be talking about one aspect in what is theoretically one part of the portfolio, but it really has um, a read across to, to other areas. So, for example, just as an example, um, you know, we, we set up a Dear Working Group in this parliament in response to committee concerns. The Dear Working Group has reported. So we've now got to think about how we respond to that. But the arguments about Dear that I was having 10 years ago in the Wildlife and Natural Environment Bill are kind of different to what we're talking about now, because actually Deer now are considered to be that their management is important for biodiversity, but it's also important for uh, our emissions targets because deer are quite destructive of tree planting and they're quite destructive um, if you're doing peatland restoration and then a whole load of deer come in and mash it all up um, and create. So you begin to see what, what was originally seen as belonging in one bit of the portfolio actually reads across now and is seen to read across the whole of the portfolio. Um, so that now has just developed a much more coherent whole. Whether that was what was actually intended is another matter, but it, it, by, by bringing it together in that way, that then began to drive it. And with the climate change issue going right up the agenda, that in itself began to, to provide the umbrella right across the portfolio too. Yeah, I really remember that becoming a very tangible thing that the environment and climate change basically became embedded into every other portfolio, completely overarching. 
James, you laughed there, but I guess your job within the NatWest group was actually to bring together those various and sometimes disparate groups together under one umbrella and to create one coherent strategy. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think the point that uh, Rosanna makes is really well made. Climate change touches so many things and you've got to think of this as a whole system. And um, and I think uh, that's why uh, we think that, you know, finance is at the heart of the transformation that we're going to make as we move from where we are today to net zero emissions in the future. Um, and we need clear policy signals and we need to see behaviour change coming on as well. And then we can mobilise finance for the transition. Um, and so, you know, for us, the Royal Bank of Scotland, it's a really exciting opportunity uh, for us to be part of that journey with our customers. And Chris, I guess the last five years in some ways, although we will come back to the 2019 climate emergency announcement, it's been the bringing together of many things, of policy, of politics, of activism, and the coalescing of all those things into one, which makes your role an entirely sensible one. Well, see, I don't know if it's sensible, but it's certainly it's been pretty exciting. I mean, I've had a riot in this job in the time I've done it. It's been it's been such a, an amazing time to do the job. Um, uh, 2019 was a, was a real critical point because that was the point when we offered this advice that the the ambition should be raised to this net zero goal that we now have in Scotland and across the UK. And it's amazing to see what's how that's kind of become a, a signal. Um, so I mean that rested obviously on not just the technical work we did, but also a clear a clear movement in politics and in society towards that kind of goal. And James used a, an interesting uh, word there about you know kind of optimism, and, and and I think that's the thing that's allowed it to happen is that people haven't seen it as a council of despair. It's been something that's been positive in all senses of that word, um, and it's, it's it is all all encompassing. And I think previously, maybe a few years ago, we might have seen that as a barrier. You know, the fact that it's it's so uh, so spread as a goal and so um, so difficult in many ways to achieve would have been a reason not to do it. But actually, I think that's one of the things that's flipped is that people now see the opportunity of making this change. I mean, we do the technical work, but there's all the kind of, um, you know, the, the, there's the, the political stuff behind that. And then I think there's the desires of the people in this country. I just wonder from all of you, actually, and probably particularly you, Chris, how important was that message? And actually, how important was it that it wasn't just seen as words? It's hugely important. I mean, I, I remember we it took us a long time to put together the analysis that led to the recommendation that we should have a zero target. I mean, a lot will refer to it as though that was a fait accompli from the off, but it wasn't. It started requests from in particular whether that target was compatible with the obligations that we had under the Paris Agreement, the agreement that was that was made in 2015. Um, so we began this process of looking at it. And I remember as we put the analysis together that it was becoming clearer and clearer that uh, we could, we, net zero was the obvious uh, recommendation. And not only that, but in Scotland, it was going to be in advance of the rest of the UK. And it's important to say that UK has a target of 2050 for net zero and Scotland has in one sense. They're, they're unified because if the UK is going to get to 2050 on time, then Scotland's actually got to get there sooner because it's got greater potential to store carbon. I remember this stuff coming together and you, you could start to think, well bloody hell, is this going to stick? You know, is this going to work? And um, uh, and Chris, uh, the First Minister agreed the, the recommendation almost immediately. Um, and it, it created this real momentum. I mean, it was uh, it's difficult to know what would have happened if, if she hadn't agreed it. I'm very glad that she did. 
but it almost made it inevitable that other parts of the UK would do the same thing. So you get this real kind of moment at that at that point. Now, what has happened since is that we've started to really grapple with what the implication of that target is. And of course, there's there's a big, big set of implications there, which Rosanna and others around the cabinet table in Scotland and, of course, Boris Johnson and his colleagues in Westminster are now grappling with as we speak. But I'm kind of okay with that. I'm, I'm very much a sort of book it, book it and they'll come type of guy. So I think if the analysis points to setting a target like that, if the science points to that, and crucially, if we can point to it being a practical target to achieve, then I sort of feel that it's okay to set it, get the ambition in the right place and things will kind of fill in behind it. But it wouldn't have happened, I think, if we didn't have a big political commitment from the First Minister. I mean, Rosanna, that moment when the First Minister did announce uh, um, that this was a climate emergency, how did that feel personally for you? But but also on targets, they so often become ticket uh, sticks to beat politicians with. Yeah, well, I don't think there's very much you can do about that. Um, uh, I'll just I'll come back to targets just in a minute because, of course, we're in an interesting conversation in Scotland about targets. Um, the declaration of the climate emergency um, uh, was seen as immensely uh, important. Uh, I mean, it didn't come as a surprise to me because obviously there was a, a conversation um, about that. But I think um, it was extremely important at the time uh, because there was very uh, little in the way of global sign up to that concept. So I think it was really important uh, that it was done um, uh, and, and doubly so uh, that it was being done by us, but also because we had um, legislation coming through. So we had not just the opportunity to uh, uh, use the rhetoric, which you, you obliquely referred to, Mandy, but, not, but to take that rhetoric and actually put it into legislative commitment. And that is one of the things that makes Scotland quite different because there is a lot of, policy declaration and rhetoric in a lot of other countries, um, there isn't anything like the same commitment that there is in Scotland to actually embedding uh, this into uh, legislative frameworks. And that's what often sets Scotland apart from even other countries that look very ambitious as well. Um, so I need to say that. The issue about targets, uh, um, I've always regarded targets have to be ambitious enough to stretch you um, uh, because otherwise there, there isn't much point in having them. If they're too easy, then there isn't much point in having them. Um, if you make them too difficult, then, then, uh, then they become a major problem for everybody. So it's finding the target setting is just at that right spot that, that is pushing the ambition, getting you to go further than you might otherwise have done if you were just you know, taking a, 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 an easier, more methodical approach. Um, but yes, they do, and then can become uh, um, uh, ar arguments about, well, you've failed um, to reach the target. But, but I'm, I'm less bothered about that. I mean, if you set a very ambitious target and you fail to meet it by a couple of percent, the fact is, if you hadn't set a very ambitious target, you might have got to the target and not bothered about going past it by a couple of percent. So what would we rather have? You would rather have, you know, getting to that achievement, perhaps failing by a few percent, but nevertheless having gone past what might have otherwise been an easier, more achievable target. So it's a bit of a, you know, it, it, it's a bit of a conundrum with targets. Um, 
And as Chris will know, of course, the target that the, the Committee on Climate Change recommended for Scotland, the interim target that was recommended for Scotland was 20, uh, was the 70% by 2030. There was absolutely no real concern about the 2045 net zero target. We, we, we kind of knew that was coming and we were up for doing that. The discussion then became about the CCC's advice on the recommended 30%, uh, 70% by 2030. And the parliament wanted to go to 75%. So that was, that was cross parliament. So every Tory MSP, every Labour MSP, and all the right, all wanted to go past the target that the CCC had set. Um, and that's where the interesting conversation is going to arise, you know, that difference there. Because, and I don't know whether Chris Stark looked back at my evidence to the committee at the end when I was doing the oral evidence on the climate change update. And they were putting it to me that CC did not think 75% by 2030 was achievable. And I have to say, I thought, and I said to them, well, given that the CCC recommended 70%, they were hardly going to turn up to the committee and just say, oh, yes, now you mention it, 75% after all, uh, absolutely hunky-dory. But also, every single one of them at that committee had voted for 75%. And, and this is what happens. The targets become this point of contention. And I wish we could just move slightly away from that. The targets are important but they're important about what you do to get to the target, not just in and of itself. If you get too tied up and focused on the actual figure of the target, you miss the point, I think. And James, business has targets. You have to meet them. It's part of your KPIs. And you came into the bank with the promise being there that they would at least half the climate impact of all finance activity by 2030. So you have to get to those targets. It's what you say to your clients. Mm, yeah, completely. And, uh, and I really agree with what Rosanna says. And setting the long-term targets of net zero and then working back to the interim targets is is really important and, and you do need to get that comb combination of stretch and achievability um, and i think what's also interesting is we're doing this a little bit without a full set of data so we've got to develop and build the data set that enables us to understand the emissions in our portfolio today uh, before we can start to think about how are those businesses going to shift how is our financing going to shift and what that's going to mean for the pathway that we take uh, towards that uh, 2030 target. Um, so, you know, we, we have to look at the portfolio in aggregate, but we also have to break it down into individual sectors. And I think what's interesting about uh, net zero is there's lots of different ways to get there, as, you know, Chris and his team have shown in terms of the way in which you can model some of these things. Um, as a financier, you, you, you're not going to predetermine a lot of those things you're actually going to follow the market where the demand is for the finance and you're also going to send a signal to the kind of uh, activities that are actually high emitting activities and are going to prevent us getting there so you've got to build that tension into the system in terms of what more you're doing to achieve the target and what less you're doing so that you're not encumbering yourself with high emissions uh, activities in the future and it'd be here, can I just say it'd be interesting to hear Chris on the, the issue of the uncertainty of the constantly changing science. So we've had an example of that already 
because the science around uh, um, uh, peatland emissions changed between when we published the climate change plan update in December um, and and now. So you're you're against a backdrop of a kind of constantly changing uh, landscape of even scientific understanding. And the CCC is what helps us to deal with that. But even they're constantly having to deal with that themselves. The anticipation and almost like you, 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 you've got to have a kind of predictive element. And sometimes the predictions won't work out. Sometimes you've just you you're you're having to make decisions about things and accepting that might not happen that way it might not work out and all of that uncertainty is also part of this conversation but we don't talk a lot about that uncertainty and actually i was going to just say that to james before we come back to chris but uncertainty is not what mm. business likes so the two things for me when you were talking how do you how do you make an opportunity for some of your businesses that are involved in, for instance, the oil and gas sector out mm. of a climate change um, emergency or a climate emergency? But also, how do you deal with the uncertainty of what Rosanna describes as the ever-changing landscape? Yeah, well, I, I, mean, I think on the, on the oil and gas sector specifically, um, you know, we work hard with our clients to understand their transition plans. Um, and there's there's not you know there's lots of different transition pl plans that individual oil and gas companies are putting together that have different approaches. Some are switching to renewables very aggressively. Uh, others are looking much more for carbon capture uh, usage and storage. Um, but we need to be able to uh, engage in a sensible and uh, informed way. And therefore, how we measure the emissions from individual organisations. Uh, over the period of the lifetime of our lending. Um, so it is really, really difficult. And prior to uh, doing this job, I was at the World Bank and um, uh, and we sort of uh, coined this phrase of decision-making under extreme uncertainty. And, and I think that it's, it's very true. And, it, you know, it's true here in uh, Scotland and uh, the UK. But imagine what, if you're trying to do that in uh, Africa, where your uh, rainfall is increasing, you know, at an extraordinary rate and becoming very, very difficult to anticipate. So optionality becomes a really important part of the decision making process. Uh, and it's also a way in which you can price some of those risks into uh, your lending so that you do have means of, um, uh, of building uncertainty into your decision making. Um, but of course, I mean, it comes back as well to good quality data. So you need good quality data in terms of uh, what's happening today and then good quality assumptions about what's going to happen in the future. And I think if you look at, to Rosanna's point, you know, the climate sciences has really uh, converged in many ways. You know, we now have through the IPCC a pretty much gold standard of, of uh, climate science decision making. Still a lot of variability around it, but at least it pulls it together in a common framework that we can all challenge and consider and have a consistent conversation around. And I think that's the way you deal with some of this uncertainty. I mean, Chris, for you, with there are so many tensions, I guess, business, politics, policy. Blah. I mean, how do you bridge that gap? How do you try and bring everybody on board? Well, there's a technical answer to that, which is one, I, one I'll start with. I mean, it's quite interesting. We are required by law to think about it. So, so as we've been at this job now for 12, 13 years, 
And uh, I mean, it's worth debating how we do that or talking about it. I mean, a lot of people talk about the, the, the work that we do as forecasting, but actually it's not, it's hindcasting. So what we're doing is standing in the future and looking back. And it's a really useful technique because what we're required to do that. It's basically we stand in a world in the future where we've achieved these targets that we're talking about. And what we're asking ourselves is what was the quickest route to get here? What are the things that we wish we hadn't done? What are the things that we would like to have done more of? You know, those sorts of things. And every year those uncertainties will be there. But of course, we get clearer and clearer about some of the pathways to getting to the target. And that's been really helpful. And I, I'd, I'd recommend it. I mean, I, I think that James and colleagues will be thinking in that way, I'm sure, about some of the investments that they're, that they're supporting. But it's, it's, it's really powerful as a way of doing it. It's, it, it happens to fall out of the, um, the importance of carbon as a metric generally, because it is this thing that we use right across the economy. It has all these deep implications for the way that we live our lives uh, for the economy, not just here in this country, but around the world for society generally. So changing that as a key metric is such an enormous step. And actually, you do need to think in a fundamentally different way about how life will change. What's interesting in the work that we've done, if you take that um, that hindcasting approach, is that there are lots of ways to achieve these targets that don't involve damaging disruptions, that don't involve the kind of scary changes that you know I think some people think are in store for us. I mean, you can take those chat. You can take those approaches. The kind of really radical changes to lifestyles might help along the way, I suppose. But we don't need to see those changes, so we can get to a world by mid-century where, in this country at least, we've met net zero, and it will look similar to the way that we live our lives now. We'll still be flying in in, in airplanes. We'll still be driving cars. Uh, you know, we'll still have jobs that look similar to the ones we have today. We'll still be warm in our homes. Um, but it does require you to make steps early. And that's the power of that technique is that you, you, when you see things clearly like that, you can say, well, actually, what matters is what you do over the next 10 years. If you want to get to that target by mid-century, you've really got to work hard over the next 10 years to put the conditions in place so that you get to it on time. And, it, and that's, that's the power of it. And it's that, I think more and more as we've come to understand the, the, you know, the factors that will get us to these targets, the more we've been able in my job to be actually pretty spiky with government about what those things need to be. So we're an advisory body, we're not a regulatory body, but we can say with some certainty that unless you've done X, Y, Z, then you're stuffed. So, you know, you've got to, it's really powerful to be able to say that. I'd like to live in your world, actually, Chris. I like the whole idea of hind casting. It sounds lovely. And Rosanna, that whole idea that Chris talked about of not letting yourself get into that council of despair, you've got to be optimistic. Do you have that optimism? Mm, sometimes. <laughs> um, I, I, I feel optimistic at a sort of um, global level because I think we will probably stumble towards the right outcome globally. I, I think where my optimism is a little tempered is just that sense, and it's a phrase I've used often, that sense in which people are willing, they, they will will the ends, but they're not so keen when it comes to willing the means, because willing the means is where the hard decisions are. Um, it is easy to talk about the the end point and and be absolutely crystal clear about getting there. Um, when it comes down to actually some of the actions that may need to be taken or indeed not taken, that's when it be, it can get it into a bit of a mess. And I always 
point people back to what I consider to have absolutely ludicrous debate that emerged around a benign little proposal to give local authorities the discretion, if they so wished, to impose workplace car parking levies. And that ignited a massive row. And, and it, it just seemed to me to be symptomatic of one of the problems that every we will, this will be happening all around the world, that you want X, but when it comes to doing the things that you need to get to X, each of those individual actions becomes much more controversial and, and debated um, and all the rest of it. So my pessimism is a bit in and around that um, uh, rather than the bigger picture, if that makes any sense. I, I just feel that the capacity for some of the individual actions, um, whether they be carrot or stick, um, to become individually major points of political contention where everybody has lost sight of the end point is the thing that worries me. Um, and I'm absolutely certain Scotland will not be the only place with exactly the same problem. But I kind of feel that overall that the drive is to get there and we will manage to stumble there. Um, there might be some hiccups and uncertainties along the way, but I do believe we will get there. I think that's a really important point, Chris, you know, that I think um, people feel overwhelmed still by such a huge, all-encompassing issue that they don't feel that they've got, they can make an individual contribution to change. Yeah, and, and, and I agree. And I think that that risk of overwhelming is, is very real, actually. If you work in, in, the, in the field I work in, you, you, can, you can be easily overwhelmed. And I think many, many people who work on climate change are overwhelmed by it. Um, I mean, just to go back to the point on optimism, uh, we are moving at such a pace now to you know, quite a different world from the one we were in just a few years ago when it comes to the outlook on, on climate. And, I, and it's an interesting thing just to, just to talk through a little um, it's the underlying economics that have changed. So today, as we talk right now, it, it is cheaper to to use non-fossil fuel means of generating electricity than to use fossil fuels. So, I mean, that just, just to just dwell on that for a second, that means that if you're in a country that hasn't yet had the kind of fossil fuel revolution that we've had in, in Scotland and in the UK, why would you bother? So, you know, that kind of that's an amazing thing. And that's creating a huge disruption, which is a term that James will care more about, I'm sure, from the banking side, because those disruptions are, are commonplace in the market. So that's a big disruption in the energy sector. It's also an enormous disruption in other sectors when you think about how you might use that cheap uh, zero carbon electricity. So think what's happening in the transport sector, for example. And I happen to believe that we are going to go at some pace now towards electric cars as a means of traveling. It's not going to be because of some philanthropic desire to do that in the automotive sector. It's because the cars themselves will be cheaper to, to run and, to, and cheaper to drive. And, and of course, they're cleaner in cities. People want, people want them. So, you know, I think we're only really at the beginning of understanding how those disruptions are going to play out. And that's where my optimism comes from, actually, is that, you know, I can tell you right now that there is a way to get to net zero in Scotland and that we can do it by 2045. But I'm very sure that over the course of the next 25 years, there will be even more opportunities to get there and there'll probably be opportunities to get there even quicker for people who live in this country 
uh, even if they don't care about climate change. So that's that's enormously positive, and it's it has changed in the recent years as well. So we're, I don't think that that has filtered through yet into the discussion. I think we will get to the point where not focusing on net zero, not focusing on decarbonisation, will be seen as something that is very negative politically. Uh, if you haven't got that baked in, and I think you know, we come to the issue of what's happening in Glasgow at the end of this year with the COP. That's going to be the theme of the COP. That you know, this net zero thing is 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 not, as I said earlier, a council of despair at all. It's a really positive, optimistic framing of what every economy around the world needs to focus on and get done. So, I, I think that is. I, I really believe that we're at the beginning of that. So we haven't really understood how that optimism might might um, filter through into the outlook. I mean, that's a good uh, segue. Thank you <laughs> into James. And just, I mean, James, the bank is sponsor, one of the main sponsors for COP. So clearly you see the business imperative about all of this. Mm. Um, do you share the optimism that uh, Chris clearly has? Um, uh, I think we, we sort of refer ourselves to, uh, ourselves as stubborn optimists in the climate movement because, you know, you, you have to sort of balance, as Christiana Figueroa says, this outrage of what's going on with the optimism of what's possible. Um, and I think just a couple of other data points around this. I think um, it's over three quarters of people when surveyed recently said that they were worried or very worried about climate change. So there's an enormous shift in understanding here. But at the same time, relatively few people understand what contribute that they do contributes to to creating emissions, and I think it's really uh, impressive of what the Scottish government does in terms of, has done in terms of this uh, draft public engagement on climate change. You know, using net zero nation as something that Chris says motivates people and really excites them towards it. And I think what's going to be interesting about the COP is. Uh, how, uh, for the first time, really, I mean, even the Paris COP it sort of captured the imagination of the French to some extent, but it wasn't really deliberately bringing everybody in and uh, and, and really connecting. Um, but the, the government's got a, an intention to really try and create this as a national conversation about uh, what we can all do to contribute. And that's going to very rapidly increase our levels of learning and understanding. Um, and that's something that we can help with when we engage with our customers. You know, we're talking to them about uh, decisions that they're making for their future. And if we can, um, as Chris says, lend them a bit more money so that they can save money in the future, that's a good business proposition for us. And it's a good proposition for them as well. And you can see uh, this coming together in a sort of way in which, particularly post COVID, when we're all looking for, you know, opportunities for businesses and um, for capital investment to facilitate some of that activity uh, for us to get back onto a sustainable growth trajectory. And, and the COP is a very important part of the um, UK and the Scottish position around that. But also internationally, um, you know, the whole design of the Paris Agreement was this concept of ratchets. So every five years, countries come back with a higher level of ambition. Um, and uh, that's that's really got the conversation going uh, in terms of uh, China committing to net zero by 2060, Japan and Korea by 2050, the EU and the UK and Scotland doing their pieces. Um, and we'll see where the US lands up. I mean, it's, it's very clear that they're going to be ambitious about this as well. So once you've built that momentum, you're having a different type of conversation about the level of ambition. Now, you know, in the spirit of stubborn optimism, of course, 
The UN synthesis report suggested that the NDCs that had been submitted were only reduced emissions by 1% uh, from what was committed in Paris. So we've still got a heck of a long way to go uh, to get to the point where we can confidently say we've reached peak emissions. Zana, you won't be the Cabinet Secretary for Environment, I can say that, I suspect, given you're standing down in May. Is it disappointing for you that you won't be um, there for COP in Glasgow? Oh, yes, a bit. I mean, I, you know, I've attended COPs um, throughout the entire period um, and, you know, it, it would have been fantastic to have had the final COP um, that I attended officially be the Glasgow COP. Um, and that would have been, uh, you know, the case, uh, whatever decision I'd made. Uh, but we are where we are. There's not much you can do about it. You know, um, I, I can't change it. Um, uh, all I can do is make sure that where we are right now is in the right place for my successor to then take it forward. Um, and there's a lot of engagement ongoing um, about what the, what the COP will be like, how we will... Uh, what we will be looking uh, for and uh, how we will do that engagement. And, and there are some really good signs. I, I thought it was, you know, it's useful to talk about the extensive engagement of the people of Scotland, because when the call went out for the 2000 volunteers, now, you know, Glasgow obviously has the experience of the Commonwealth Games, put the same call out for 2000 volunteers and ended up with 7000 names people coming in. So there's absolutely massive appetite to, to, to be engaged with this event um, and with what it means. And I do think there's already networks across Scotland that will find niche interest in, in lots of aspects of the COP. And I'm thinking about things like the extensive uh, engagement that there is in civic Scotland with, for example, Malawi whether it's schools or church parishes or all the rest of it, but you can see how from a COP26 perspective that can be easily nudged over into extensive conversations with those same, uh, that same Civic Scotland about global justice, um, uh, global climate justice, which is going to be a big part of, uh, I think, the conversation at COP26 and certainly is one of the things that we want to push hard on. So you can see how people will become engaged across Scotland with all of this um, and with the potential to showcase what Scotland has to offer. Um, I suppose we're, we're not, when I was in Madrid at the end of 2019, there was an enormous amount of enthusiasm and excitement about the Scottish COP because a huge number of people clearly saw this as an opportunity for a great party. Uh, and, you know, it was, it, you know, there was there was an enormous amount of enthusiasm for the for the way that it would look and feel. Um, and I have I can't anticipate exactly what that is going to be like now in November, given the year that we've just had. Um, but we are working very hard, however, to make sure we deliver something that is really uh, worthwhile and really meaningful and does engage people um, as as widely as possible. And not just within Scotland, because there is a danger of falling into the trap of, well, it's a conversation between the UK government and the Scottish government. Well, I had a bilateral with my Welsh government counterpart um, uh, uh, on Monday. And, you know, they too are wanting a way to be involved and in showcasing what they're doing. So, you know, there is, there is a real enthusiasm, I think, for this amongst populations, uh, not just across the UK, but elsewhere as well.
You'll definitely be invited to the Holyrood uh, Climate Change Cayley. So you'll yeah, I know you said that before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll get in, oh, don't you dare. <laughs> you, you mentioned the, um, I mean, you've all mentioned briefly the pandemic. I mean, clearly we've lived through and we are living through a horrendous time. There have been positives in terms of the environment. And um, I just wonder from all of you really, if I start with you, Rosanna, I mean, do you think there are positives for the environment, for climate change that we can pull out of the pandemic, particularly around the way behaviours have changed? I think there are some. I think we have to be very careful not to be, you know, what's the upside of the pandemic? That does not, that's really not where you need to be. Um, I think that there, we were thrown into a way of living, which I suppose if we'd uh, been asked about, would have just looked bizarre. Um, but having, having had to live like that, I think there are some things that will continue. I do not think that there is any sense in which there is everybody is going to rush back to the office now. I think that, that model of work has now undergone such a shift that I cannot see it just returning to everybody back to the office. Now, I'm not saying there won't be some back to the office or some part of the week back to the office, but I think the whole working from home concept has been utterly demystified now. Um, and I believe that what we are going to get as a result of this past year is a much more hybrid way of working where people will be um, in an office environment some of the time, uh, but working from home other parts of the time, and that will be a conversation that have with employers and I notice some employers are just pulling back from office altogether others are looking for a, a more blended thing so I think there's a big change and when you do that you take you know uh, principally cars off the road um, uh, and you change the dynamic in in smaller town centers um, and places so people are not emptying out you're less likely to get the dormitory suburb concept. You're, you're, you're changing the way people think about the way they live. Personally, um, you know, I stomp about thinking, where are all these cars coming from and where are they all going? Having had the experience of roads that were quiet and clean. Um, so there is a big chunk of thinking, I think, that doesn't want to go back to choking car fumes. So I think there is a, there is a there is a bit uh, of learning that's taken place there too, but I don't want I don't I don't think we should try and overstate that because there's a big downside as to what's happened. A lot of people have you know had a very difficult time, and we need to be very careful um, about who it is we're talking about here because the people that have had the most difficult time are the people who've been able uh, unable to adjust in the same way for all sorts of reasons which circle back around to the whole just transition concept which now applies to emerging from the pandemic as well as transitioning into um, a, a decarbonized society so i think it's quite complex and much more complex than some people would make it sound what about you chris we've kind of talked about this in the past haven't we about the yeah. lessons that we might or might not learn yeah, I'm, before you 
uh, accuse me of having a Panglossian vision and all this. I mean, I'm much more uh, dubious about whether we really have had a big shift when it comes to the climate factors in the last in the last 12 months. The big one that Rosanna referenced is the change in working patterns, and I think that will have an impact. But beware the fact that more people maybe uh, will have more time in, in their leisure time to jump in their car and do something. So you see there's a bit of that evidence that actually the people are using that extra time that they might have used on the commute to drive somewhere. Um, so, I mean, I think that the biggest um, biggest kind of impact has certainly been on road traffic. You've got this kind of really fascinating set of conditions now that across all the travel modes, actually, that make my job really interesting suddenly um, in trying to predict what comes next and all that. We will be driving cars more frequently, I suspect. And I think the big push will need to be from government to use public transport again, the, the message that it's safe, the message that it still is convenient. And I think the message that it's not expensive is going to be a big push, a big challenge for governments who, um, you know, are in large part now going to be the owners of those transport services. So that's, a, you know, that's one thing to watch. Getting people out of their cars uh, took a long time before. But I think this hybrid model of working, which people have often talked about, does hold a lot of potential. And um, it's quite exciting to think about what that might do for all sorts of reasons, not just on the climate, but as Rosanna says, that I think one of the other things that we've learned in the last year is to come, we've appreciated our local communities more because we've been in them. Um, you know, appreciating things like green spaces in those communities, that will have deep-seated and quite exciting, potentially, implications, I think, in the long run. But as you and I have talked about in the past, Mandy, I'm also worried about the rebound generally and all this. There are lots of people who are absolutely choking to jump on a plane right now I'm certain that there's no reason to think that they won't be able to do so. So there's nothing that's happened in the last 12 months that, that leads you to believe that there really has been a permanent systemic change in the factors that have been driving climate change in recent years. The infrastructure that we are using with fossil fuels that causes the emissions is still there. It's just not been, it's been dormant for a year. Uh, so, you know, changing that is going to be it's as big a challenge now as it ever was. I think the big, the, the really important thing for me is that I think two things have happened in the last 12 months. We've had, an, we've had a different insight into what governments can do when the chips are down. So I think that will, that will change the electorate's view generally. People's tolerance for change is greater than we thought as well. So I think that also casts quite an optimistic light attention some of the steps that we need to take to get to net zero. So if you bring those those conditions together, then, I, you know, that gets another one of those disruptions that I referred to as we come out of this. There is a chance really that as things are thrown up in the air, they fall down in a better place, but it doesn't just happen by magic. You know, you've really got to focus on, again, that my earlier point about getting the conditions right over the next decade is really critical. If you miss that opportunity, these, these goals that we have, the ones that were set in Paris, start to move out of sight altogether. I suppose, James, for business, and you look back to 2008 and the financial crisis when everyone said, oh, things would change and we wouldn't go back to business as usual. Well, we did. Do you think this is a disruptor that will change things completely? Well, I think there's, uh, there's a lot of money that's been lent uh, to help people get over the, the, the real challenge of the uh, pandemic. Um, and, uh, you know, we've obviously had to make um, some big impairments around our sheet. Um, I think government is, you know, the lender of last resource in these circumstances. And so we'll have to figure out how to manage that over a very long period of time. I mean, the thing I worry about a little bit is that uh, we don't, we, we've, we've created too much 
concentration around the system that we've got. And we can't use this disruption as a means of driving innovation and change. And we can't adopt some of the new business models that really can be at the heart of uh, a, a different trajectory here. For example, the circular economy and circular economy business models uh, for moving to um, sharing and reuse um, has tremendous potential to deal with consumption-based emissions. And we, we quite often don't talk about consumption-based emissions, we're often talking about production-based emissions. So um, we need to make sure that we don't lose the dynamism uh, that comes from you know, the way markets work and they allocate resources. Um, and, and we need to make sure that we can stand behind you know, what we've already committed to, but figure out how we transition in the most effective way. Now, Rosanna, you're leaving politics after more than 20 years, well, 26 years. Do you think you're leaving with the environment in a better state? Yes, I do. I think, I mean, there have been um, uh, enormous changes. And I, you know, when I was first elected to the House of Commons, I was speaking on environment issues in the House of Commons. Um, uh, I've gone through uh, the setting up of the Scottish Parliament. I've been a junior minister in this portfolio and now I've been a cabinet secretary in this portfolio. So it's been a bit of a consistent um, uh, thread. Um, so I do think things are far better. The environment, uh, just broadly speaking, is far more foregrounded now than it ever would have been 25 years ago. I think there's just absolutely no doubt about that. 25 years ago, nobody was really politically talking about climate change. Um, look at the difference in that. Um, 25 years ago, you stood in the House of Commons and talked about land reform um, to a completely mystified set of MPs who really didn't understand what this was all about. It was such a niche Scottish interest. And yet here we are with it, you know, at a at a senior government level in Scotland. So, yes, I do think there have been enormous changes. Um, I mean, they're not all down to me personally, but I think there's been, you know, there has been an enormous sea change in that 20, uh, that 26 years. Um, and I think there will continue to be. I, I, I think this is, um, this is a policy area, uh, you know, that has really foregrounded in a way that nobody could have anticipated. And that isn't going to disappear. That's not going to fall back in any way, shape or form. So I would imagine whoever my successor is will, you know, will be grappling with the next five years um, of, of issues, but in that same sense of it being a major part um, of the government's agenda, but also um, embedded right across all the things that the government is doing. And, you know, I don't want to let go by the, the, the reminder that when we did the climate date, every single cabinet secretary signed that. And that's, you know, and that thing is the first time that has happened. Um, so that shift has taken place over that, that period of time. And I don't think you're going to go back from that now. I don't think there's any way that it's, that it's, that it's going to fall back in importance. It's only going to grow in importance. I was wincing a bit when you talked about offices not opening up in the same way, because I think we're really missing something of people not being together in the room, that there's a creativity and a sharing of ideas that we're all missing. And that's the point I guess I wanted to end on, which is to James and Chris about how you see us going forward and with our working lives, basically, how will we come out of this? How will we organise? I mean, can I, I'll go first. I'm happy to say, I mean, I'm, I've, I work in London uh, for this job and normally that involves me getting up at four o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday and getting the train down to London and coming back on a Friday 
I haven't done that for a year. And funnily enough, I am desperate to get back to the office because I miss what you described, Mandy, the creativity that comes from being in a room full of people. It's enormously difficult to do that uh, virtually. We've produced some of the most important work we've ever produced in the last 12 months. It's been an absolute you know, tome of material that we've produced in the, in the um, Climate Change Committee. But it's been really, really difficult um, to do that virtually. There's a strange new form of presenteeism that comes from virtual working. When you send something around for comment, which suddenly you get three times the comments back, this is almost a kind of demonstration that they're all working. And, um, and that's a nightmare because a lot of that could be sorted out if you just sat in a room with someone and, and, you know, and talked it through. So I, I, I think hybrid working is here to stay. I don't, I'm not a fan of moving entirely to, to home working because I don't think it is a good alternative, but I'd love to see more of a mixture of it, especially if it's a way, I mentioned this earlier, but especially if it's a way of renewing those communities that have previously just been, uh, you know, commuter belt. And, um, uh, you know, that, that, that seems to me that holds a real prospect of, of, of you know, a, a big change in culture and society in this country over the coming years. So I, I hope that that's not really a climate concern at all, actually. I, I just think that's a societal shift that we should embrace. Yeah. And James, what about you? You wanting to get well, back uh, into the office? Yeah, well, I, I, uh, I took this job in January for the Royal Bank of Scotland. So I, I haven't met anybody through the interview process. Uh, I've got special dispensation to go into the office next Wednesday because we've got our, our climate week. Uh, um, and uh, I can't wait to meet uh, some uh, of my colleagues in the, in, in the flesh. I mean, it's going to be quite, a, quite an experience. Um, so in many ways, that sustains us, I think, as we you know, hopefully come towards the end of what's been quite an extraordinary year of, of being locked up. And you know, we will get uh, to the point where we have this huge uh, amount of uh, pent up innovation and dynamism and enthusiasm. And if we can all come to Glasgow in November and bring that uh, together to collaborate around this agenda, I think we can get a fantastic outcome from COP26. Um, and it'll be wonderful to be in Glasgow and uh, Rosanna, you'll be very welcome at, uh, at our uh, uh, pavilion in, in, I'm sure. And we look forward to uh, meeting up and having these conversations in person. I think that calls for a drink. Here, <laughs> <laughs> here. It yeah. is bright evening after all. <laughs> yeah. That's one of the best bits about homework, isn't it? You can, you can start drinking, well... Pretty much from the off. <laughs> I've not had a drink. I've not had a drink since New Year. You better, better hope oh, Mandy God. cuts that out of the wood. <laughs> I mean, if ever there was a time to drink, it's long. It's As someone much greater than I said, a week is a very long time in politics. And believe me, I know Scottish politics is never boring. So don't leave it long. Make sure you come back and join us on Politically Speaking. And remember that you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And do tell your friends because everybody has an interest in politics.